you so desperately in our lives constantly. You are our life, Lord Jesus. You give us abundantly of your spirit. You form us into your image. We thank you to set us free from our selves. So that, as Paul says, we end up by your grace. Because we are controlled now by the love of Christ. We no longer live for ourselves, but to live for Him and die for us. Lord, to have you as the whole purpose of our life, to have you form the whole direction and meaning of our life, to redefine our life, reshape us after your image. Lord, it will cost us in one sense, everything. And we will gain everything as we conform our ways to you, as we give ourselves up to your grace, as we open up our broken lives to your mercy. Bless us, Lord. Bless us that we will be so deeply and constantly impacted by the washing and cleansing and repairing of your mercy that we ourselves can be the repair of the breaches that we who are comforted will delight in comforting others oh lord bless us for jesus sake amen i think one of the most beautiful images in scripture is that of jesus in john 7 at the great feast when he said, and water was poured out at a particular time in that feast, and it represented the water that was supplied, that supplied Egypt, uh, uh, Israel in the desert. And at that, that high point in the feast, Jesus said, if any man comes to me and believes in me, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to say he was talking about the Spirit, which had not been poured out yet because he had not been exalted to the right hand of the Father. But that image, we used this a few weeks ago in talking about reaching out. And the picture I want to remind you of is that by God's grace, we each become an oasis. That's our glory, that we each really become an oasis of water that supplies us because of the Spirit and it it spills out and others drink from it. And worship, as Brian talked about, forms us for this oasis. Uh, You might say that we we come together to dig the channel deeper and wider so that we can understand more of the goodness and mercy and grace of God so that that mercy and grace will reflect itself in the way we deal with others. But with that image of being supplied and being this, <clears throat> this oasis, I, I want us to explore in terms of mercy how that oasis works. I certainly don't want to leave us as just guilty, battered people uh, because we don't show mercy like we should. But I, I hope that we can grow in our understanding of building and supplying and enriching this oasis of mercy that we taste ourselves constantly 
and that begins to spill out more and more in our lives to everyone around us, those dearest to us, those most different from us, uh, so that this does become, and then collectively, this grand oasis which people, as we talked about last week, come to begin to belong before they even believe. People, one image that was given to me, I think I've shared this with you, but he says you can either have a fence church in which people are kind of judged before they come in. You have to dress a certain way and not have tattoos in the wrong places and you know have your life together to a certain extent before we'll, not that we would, stop people literally from coming in the door, but there's a sense in which, you know, certain people just better not come in here, you know, a fence mentality, or they need to believe the right things, and they need to have their life together and their beliefs somewhat together before they come in among us. Or we have a well, W-E-L-L mentality. We're drinking at the well. We're being supplied, and We're inviting any and all to come. Come drink from this well with us. Come enjoy these rich waters that we are drinking from. The water of Jesus Christ and his mercy. I want us to be a well, church. That carries two meanings, really, doesn't it? Instead of a fence church, instead of a sick church. uh, But I want us to be a well, church, by God's grace. So first... In talking about supplying this well, this oasis, being these oases, we want to talk a little bit about the merciful God, okay? And then uh, that's preparing us a little bit to go to Isaiah 58, where we read of merciless worshipers, okay? And then finally, we'll look at merciful worshipers. What does that look like? And joy will be a huge component of merciful worshipers as they have their resource in joy, as they run after joy, as they are replete with joy. Which gets kind of the bumping up against our vision statement. Uh, Nurturing people, nurturing in a joy that spills over in love to God and love to others. First of all then, merciful God. The thing about God and us is that he sees our sin in all its awful depth, right? He sees our sin, sees the murderous flavor of our commitment to self. We don't really think of it like that. He sees the murderous flavor of your commitment to self. He sees the purposeful blindness of my evil. He sees the pride that I have that really wants to replace God with me. That's what my pride ultimately wants to do. Why else would I disobey him? No, I want to be God. I want to call my shots. Get out of my life, right? Gosh, one pathetic moment in junior high. Of course... Or all, all moments are almost pathetic in junior high, but no. <clears throat> at least they were for me, not, not for you. But <clears throat> so I'm sitting at the lunch table, and cute little Martha Wise, who is kind of, you know, never really a girl, but, but we were kind of interested in each other. Cute little girl. 
lived in my neighborhood. So she comes up behind me, and I'm with a bunch of guys, and, and I'm wanting to show off. You know, I'm wanting to show how tough I am, how I don't need this girl and all this. So I, I, I say a few nasty little things, smart aleck things, short things, and she just realizes, well, gosh, you know, and walks off. And so I'm there just flaming proud of how I put her down, you know. And so I'm going to, as I talk about it, I say something like, I really showed her, and I have this empty milk carton. I said, I really showed her, except it wasn't empty. And milk just sprayed all over my face, you know. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly the sound that was around that time. Ah, Jordan, you're so cool. You're so tough. Look at you, you know. Just ridiculous, you know. And it was so appropriate, you know, so appropriate. Because there I was, pompous, bratty, mean, fawning for the attention of these guys at the expense of another human being. I mean, how many forms of evil in that one act, right? Pathetic. And we're blind on purpose to so much of our evil, but God sees every malicious, jagged, bloody edge of our sin. And our sin deserves nothing but death, you realize. I mean, eternal judgment death, that's what it deserves. I mean, Paul, this is the wage that you've earned with your sin. Here's what's coming to you. Here's the check that's going to be handed over to you. And you fully deserve it. You fully earned every bit of it. Eternal judgment and damnation. We actually say that, maybe a little nicer words, but we say that every time we come before the congregation and profess our faith. Do you believe that you are justly deserving his displeasure? And displeasure isn't God saying, oh, that was not good. Okay? That's not the kind of displeasure. It's ultimate, eternal, infinite wrath poured out upon you Forever. That's what we deserve. And you see, that's where mercy comes in. That's where mercy has come in for each one of you. It's like somebody who robbed a bank, injured people, it's going to be put away forever. And for some reason, He stands before the court and they have mercy on him. It's like the guy in Matthew 18. The master had a servant that owed 10,000 denarii. Unlimited amount, basically, for this servant. So he could never repay. So he's he's going to be thrown in the prison. It says, the master has compassion on him and shows him mercy. Forgives the debt. Brothers and sisters, this is your life. This is my life. We've had mercy shown to us. Every day we live in that mercy. We have a throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews says in 4.16, in which we can come and receive mercy and grace in time of need. 
We're always in need of mercy. We live under mercy constantly. This is the way God operates. And it has everything to do with the way we deal with others because in Titus 3, after saying, show perfect courtesy to every single person, no matter how bad or evil or whatever they are. Why? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But He saved us, not because of works, but because of His mercy, the writer of Paul says there in Titus. Why do we show mercy and kindness to everything that moves? Because look at what we were, and He had mercy on us. He had mercy on us. It's the same word used in the famous Ephesians 2 passage about God's grace. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, completely governed by the evil one, inheritors of wrath. But God, because of His great mercy, it says God being rich in mercy, because of His great love, raised us up. Well, many, many passages speak of this. When people came to Jesus to be healed, so many times they would cry out, have mercy. And so there's this element, not only that we've been saved from punishment, but we come asking for mercy and compassionate heart because of our brokenness, our weakness, our failure. We can't fix ourselves. We're we're so hurt and broken up inside, we don't even know why we do the things we do. Why do I mistreat my wife or my husband or my children the way I do Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. And like the tax collector who wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, Jesus says, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, realizing his brokenness, his helplessness, his guilt, all of these things. We we have received God's mercy. And this is who God is. This is the only way He operates. It says, as a, as a way of operation, at the end of this huge section in Romans about God's mercy and grace, it says, He shut everybody up to disobedience so that He might show mercy to everybody. Okay? So the point is, He makes it clear, another place in Romans talks about him shutting every mouth. You know, we've got a mouth that are, that's going to say to God, I've got these works, I've got these good things. Every mouth is shut. We're all silent. Now, it's mercy. It's the only way you can approach God, mercy. You don't bring anything except your helplessness and your brokenness and your guilt and your sin, and you ask for mercy. And you enjoy that mercy. You're relieved in that mercy. You're comforted in that mercy. And you begin to be amazed that he would give you this, astonished that there could be such mercy, and overjoyed that you've experienced that mercy. And so, this is, this is who this God is. He's this merciful God. And Jesus pictures the Father in Luke 15 in that great parable of the prodigal son. And when the son arose... 
from the pigsty and came to his father. He was going to plan this little speech, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So he's the merciful God who planned mercy from all eternity, who only operates by mercy, who has such a compassionate heart. He's, this word for feeling compassion is like your insides melting, you know, just, just melted in love for our need in, out of this mercy. And he did it to the point that he would even die. We used that verse, didn't we? John 3.16. He so loved, so had mercy that he sent his only son. You might, if, if a man had these hundred people were in dire straits and, and he, was, he could do something for them, but he concludes, if, if I did something for every one of these people, it would completely exhaust my resources. But he does it. That's God, right? That's God. This would mean giving everything away, giving my son away, and yet he does it. So, this, we, we are the recipients of mercy from this God of mercy, and this helps us understand the bizarre and horrific nature of what was happening as told us here in Isaiah 58. After saying, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, there's this, uh, there's this shock of saying, and yet they seek me. Me is emphasized. Yet it's me they seek. Th- these people who are merciless are seeking me. Look at this joke. Look at this wild thing that these people who are ignoring the needs of others are seeking me as if that meant anything as long as they are ignoring the needs of desperate people. And he says in this passage that he will not acknowledge that kind of fasting as being real fasting. You handed me these counterfeit bills. That's not going to do. You're showing me this fake diamond. No, no, that's not going to do. And even ask that question, doesn't it? Is this the fast? Is this the fast that I am asking for? You're, you're doing, oh, you're doing the bowed head thing. Yeah, okay. And doing a little sackcloth and ashes thing. Is, 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 that, is that it? Is that your fast? You calling that a fast? <laughs> this is the feel of this passage. These people were devoted, though. Right? It says twice that they delighted. They delight to know my ways. You could put, you know, there's a good way for a 14-year-old girl to really use that, right? Uh, (laughs) They delight to know my ways. They delight to draw near to God. It says that they're diligent in this. These people are serious about their worship. They're disciplined in their worship. They're constant and consistent in their worship. And so, outwardly, there's nothing wrong with the worship. But is this what it's really about? It's, the insincerity would be like a wife who's discovered her husband has been in a 10-year affair. 10-year affair. And here's the final confrontation, and he says something like, 
Eh, no, probably shouldn't have been doing that. But look, I'm sorry. What's for breakfast? You know. And you're just horrified, horrified to think that this has any sincerity, any realization of any aspect of the depth of what you've done and what our relationship means. Bizarre, creepy, right? That's what this is. That's what this is. You are proposing that this is worship as you ignore the needs of people? Are you kidding me? That's the feel. You see, a fast, as he describes it here, the fast that I choose, it, it has to do with giving yourself up to who I am. Fasting is always meant to shut normal intake of the goodness of this world away to say in an intense way, I want to focus on your goodness and who you are, to receive you and honor you as the ultimate good. And I want to all the more benefit from your mercy and be relieved and refreshed and comforted in it, to admire it and and to live it out in my life. I want to replicate it in my life. I want to touch others with the mercy that has touched me. That's fasting. You see? Fasting is closing with God, admiring Him, wanting to embrace Him and have Him in your life and invade you and use you and and you want to be like Him. You're giving Him up. You're giving yourself up to Him in all of these ways. And so, as John Oswald in his passage says, God's nature is to give Himself away to those who can never repay Him. And there's no clearer evidence of the presence of God in a person's life than a replication of that same behavior. So here they were depriving themselves of food when they had no deprivation for the sake of others. It's as though God is saying, you're depriving yourselves for this. And they're kind of congratulating themselves, patting themselves on the back. In fact, they're even wondering, why aren't we getting all the goodies and benefits from what from our fasting? Why have you not seen it? Why have you not noticed it? So some of their fasting and repentance and all this was like, you know, we get some good physical benefits from this. And you're not putting out for us. What's the problem here? You know, with all this stuff we're doing... So you're depriving yourself, but are you depriving yourselves for others, right? Uh, you're making yourself hungry. How about alleviating the hunger of others? Instead of honoring yourself and thinking, gosh, I've been so severe on myself by all that I've gone through. And so we see God points out how clearly this is in opposition Uh, to everything that he is, afflicting themselves in some outward way, but not being at all concerned about the real affliction of others. And so the question is, do we have fellowship with God who gives himself away to the powerless? Do we have fellowship with that God? Do we admire that God? Do we want to be like that God? Are we conforming ourselves 
to the ways of that glorious God. So in this merciless, ignoring, uh, ignoring of the needs of others and sharing in the affliction and abuse of these people, they continued to worship. Now, for us, you can talk perhaps in terms of systems of which we're a part of that are abusive and unjust. Perhaps not many of you are particularly engaged in oppression of the poor. But I want to remind you of some passages like this in Proverbs 24. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Proverbs twenty four eleven through 12. And then Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And so I think we've got to ask the question, what am I positively doing to alleviate? Because my hands can be just as bloody as theirs. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 1, there's a similar indictment, and he even speaks of blood on your hands. And he says in that context, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of the deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the the widow's cause. And so if, if we are people largely ignorant of, purposely, we don't think about it, we're not concerned for it in terms of mercy. It is a dangerous, dangerous thing. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, Oh, the blessedness of the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So the only people in that final day that obtain mercy are those who have received and been broken received the mercy of God, welcomed it, have understood they're being forgiven by Christ and begin to pour out their lives to others in mercy and therefore they will receive mercy. And so the, the, the danger is if we have experienced His mercy, then you really can't hold back that mercy from other people. And the real question is, where is my receiving of mercy breaking down? Where is the well breaking down? Where is the oasis messed up? Where am I letting pride or self, self-righteousness stand in the way of being absolutely or at least more and more broken before God and understanding the forgiveness that I have in Christ Jesus so that in turn... I might spend myself for others. And of course, mercy begins even with showing mercy to an older member of our congregation that you keep up with, that you call, that you visit, that you find out what, what does she or he need. That's the beginning of mercy. Mercy can be in family members. Mercy can be in your next door neighbor. Or mercy can be involved in 
the poor of the city in some way, which we'll talk a little bit about that. But here's the question each of us has to ask in light of Isaiah 58. Am I a merciless worshiper? I I think that's the question that you have to ask in Isaiah 58, right? Am I a merciless worshiper? Or is the mercy of God touching and enriching my life so that it's being poured out into other people's lives? But then... God speaks here of merciful worshipers, right? If those who begin to share their bread and bring the homeless poor into your house, etc. Those who have an eye for those around them that are in pain. <clears throat> those who just can't ignore it. Their passions are there. Their hearts are being melted for the needs of others around them. And I I want to encourage you that this is something that God will do in us. It's it's not something we can just work up and and do. It's a grace of God. It's part of His salvation. And that's good news, that He saves us and rescues us so that our hearts more and more will be melted like Jesus was. Like it said again and again, when Jesus saw uh, someone uh, sick that needed healing, He said He had compassion on them. His insides were melted. Or the crowd, several times, he had compassion on the crowds. God puts his spirit in us and we begin to have that passion. We become merciful worshipers. And the formation of worship itself, as Brian talked about, confession and assurance, is, is part of that, you see. It's part of reminding ourselves, I deserve death. I I live by mercy. I'm always living by mercy. I'm always bringing my sin to Him and receiving His mercy. It reminds us who we are. uh, Rooting ourselves in that oasis of grace. And this is not only for your own psychological and spiritual comfort and peace. Certainly it is that. And that's the starting point. The relief and joy that you have. But it has its fulfillment in your life as you then bring that comfort of mercy into someone else's life. It's the height of your joy is not in what you receive from Him. It's that receiving beginning to pour itself out in others. That's why John could actually say in 1 John chapter 1, a startling passage, he says, uh, we're writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. You think, well, wait, you've just been talking about all that you've received and had revealed in Christ. Certainly that was the fullness of joy. And he says, no, my joy is complete when I can give it away. That's the complete, the full fullness of joy. So we're rooted in this joy. And, and so we're bringing other people into the shelter of mercy that we have found. We're extending Christ's mercy to them that they might have this, loving them with the love with which we have been loved. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort in which we ourselves are comforted by God. See, 
this comfort that we receive becomes the comfort we give to others. This mercy that I enjoy and delight in and am astonished by becomes the resource and inviting others to enjoy this same mercy. And Paul, using that insides, melting insides uh, word, says, God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? That you could love others with the affection, the inside melting of Christ Jesus. And this isn't isolated for Paul. This is for all of us. This is why Paul can speak of the Macedonians saying, in their affliction and their extreme poverty, their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity. The abundance of joy overflowed into a wealth of generosity. And that's why James can say, the wisdom from above, that is the grace that, we, that comes from above, from God, is first pure than peaceable, gentle, full of mercy and good fruits. Oh, that's, that's glorious. The grace that comes to us is full of mercy and good fruits. This will be your life. This must be your life when you embrace this Lord Jesus. So it's rooted in joy, and yet, as we saw earlier, we're running after joy in it. So we, we come from the joy of Christ, and we want to fulfill that joy. And so, like John, we do these things so that our joy may be complete. And that's okay. It's good to run after your own joy. It's good to seek to be blessed in life and enriched in the presence of God. And so Jesus can say in the context of loving one another as I have loved you at this sacrificial love, I've spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Now you may or may not believe that, but a life dedicated to mercy and justice and good deeds is a life that is pursuant of joy. And if we run from those things, we are denying His promises. We're denying the whole possibility that we'll have the fullness of joy in this life. And we find ourselves in this passage, lastly, not only the resource of joy and running after joy, but replete with joy. Isn't it amazing He can say, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. In your own scorched places. In your own, the the terrible things that you will go through. The losses that you will endure. The relational difficulties that you will face in your life. The financial turndowns that you will experience. Where Where will you be replenished? Where will you find joy? Where, where will you be an oasis even then? Even then. It is in this life of spending ourselves for the sake of others that even in our scorched places, we will be supplied by God's grace. I'm not saying that's perfect, of course. I'm not saying it's not going to be difficult. But this is the promise that in darkness your light will rise and your gloom will be as the noonday. As Paul can put it in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, 
God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. There are five alls in that passage. All grace, all sufficiency in everything, every time, in every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 8. That's a good one to memorize, right? It's a good one to pray to God and say, Lord, supply me in this way, enrich me, make me this kind of oasis in this world. And it may be pregnancy lifeline, it may be kids' hope, it may be work at Cornerstone, it could be world relief, it could be IJM, International Justice Mission, that you get involved in the rescuing of at least giving to the rescue of women in sexual exploitation around the world. It could be, and it's so sad that this has become almost a little byword, starving children in Africa. Yeah, they really are starving, and they really are dying. Do we care? Are we going to do anything? Are we going to change our lifestyle in any way? And I know there are difficulties as to getting money to them and which agency is best. But, I mean, literally, children will not die if you give money. I mean, literally not die of starvation. And just because they're not next door, it doesn't matter in this world that has brought us all together. May God work in our hearts, my heart to begin with, that we will be an oasis of mercy, tasting it, being enriched by it, and pouring itself out in every form possible. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you take hold of our dark lives and bring us into the light. You take hold of us who are deserts and you form us into an oasis by your mercy and love. O oh Lord, continue to rescue us. Continue to save us for your name's sake. Amen.